0: Good afternoon
1: and welcome. It's Tuesday and that means it's time for our crack strategy panel. And it seems that every day we hear from or about another group talking about falling through the cracks of COVID-19 aid. The Prime Minister just announced help for farmers and food processors. As you heard in Bob New- Bob's News and earlier, a group of small business people from Toronto's gay village was asked asking the government to do something about the fact that their landlords were not taking up the offered commercial rent subsidy but rather moving to evict small businesses the government is saying, meantime, that this is all happening so fast, they can't forecast well enough to design a proper budget. And meanwhile, the opposition conservatives are saying that some of the supports, notably those for students, are actually a disincentive to having them work. And speaking of the opposition, the conservatives released the rules for their leadership race after our panel last met, and they're not reopening the nomination process, a fact that some editorial writers are criticizing, saying that the party needs a different kind of leader in the wake of the pandemic. Let's start there. The numbers 416-360-0740, toll free one 866 Let's bring in John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard-Highroad, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, former city councillor, as well as Charles Byrd, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Hi, everyone. How is everyone? Hi, Libby. Hello? Hi, Libby. Hi. Hello, Libby. Okay, we're all there. John, uh, since we last talked, uh, the Conservative Party released the rules for the leadership. So uh, it's going to be a race among the people who are already there, not going to be reopened. Is,
2: Is that a good call? And if I, if memory serves, Libby, I think I was on your show just last week, a day or two before it was launched, suggesting that it was probably going to say the same, didn't I? You did. <laughs> you were right. You were right. Um, well, look, at, it, and, and for the same reasons, I'm going to say that I think it is the right choice. Uh, you know, I, there, was a, there was a lot. The campaign was in full mode, obviously, before. Uh, Covid happened, and and the party rightfully suspended it, and and uh, took some some time to kind of see what what was happening and assess it, and determine what best to do. But but during that period of time, Libby, when, when it was on, and there was. A number of candidates, you know, some 15 or so that were all knocking on the doors and testing the waters and doing everything they can. and It got whittled down to the four that we see now that have been approved. That was, there was a lot of membership sales, a lot of money raised, uh, a lot of people knocking on doors and phone calls and just going to events to try to get the signatures required and the money required. So a lot of work was actually put in to get to the four that we've got now that have been approved. And, and to open it up now would, would be a disservice to those four quite frankly, and also the ones that actually tried to get in from the beginning. So, you know, look, we've got 2 we have four good candidates, two, you know, top-tier candidates in Aaron O'Toole and in Peter McKay, uh, and I think the party will be well-served with either one of them.
1: Uh, Karen, do you agree? Are either one of those people, are they the right leader for the Conservatives in the wake of the pandemic?
3: Well, I think both of them uh, have an opportunity to, and we'll, we'll stick to the two of them, because I, I don't actually think that... I think those are the ones that we're really talking about here. And, you know, I, I think that they will have to demonstrate that they are up for it, actually. And I, and I think the party has to accept that maybe they might have to revisit the decision. I mean, I don't know at what point you just make a decision and move on and don't go back and look at it again. But, you know, the world has changed and the issues confronting Canadians have changed and you know, getting through that—we've talked about this. Getting through this pandemic is is one thing. Uh, rebuilding the economy, figuring out our economic security, figuring out our supply chain um, security—those are those are big issues. That uh, you know, and even the, the, there's a new geopolitical system that we're going to have to contend with that we don't entirely understand yet. And and those are big issues. Those are uh, not ones that either candidate right now has been speaking to, and they will have to. Uh, so we'll wait and see. Uh, you know, maybe, and and you know, through this process, maybe they'll both rise to the challenge and provide Canadians with, with some great, some great choices. Uh, but you know, I, I I do think that they've done a disservice the Conservative Party to to not be a little bit more open-minded, uh, given the way things have changed.
1: Uh, yeah, Charles. I mean, we haven't heard very much from those two candidates, and and frankly, what we have heard has not actually been uh, right on the mark. What do you think?
4: Well, I I agree with Karen. I think they should reopen the race, given just how much has changed and how much of our political dynamic has changed. That said, I think the chances of them reopening the race are next to zero. There are entrenched entrenched interests on the uh, LEOC, which is the body that sets the rules for Uh, the Conservative Leadership Convention that will want to confine it to basically a two-person race between McKay and uh, O'Toole. Um, What's interesting is a couple things. First off... um, where everyone earlier or a few months ago thought this would be a coronation for Peter McKay. His campaign and he himself have obviously had some pretty significant missteps over recent weeks, and a lot of Conservatives are saying that O'Toole is the one to watch, which is quite scary if you're a Conservative, because there's not a lot to uh, this fellow that is on the record in terms of, you know, what does he stand for, what are his big ideas. You know, he's more a sniper. He's the kind of person who just um, is born for the office opposition benches and doesn't have much of a record. What's really interesting, though, is remember that when Conservatives um, elected Andrew Scheer, he had 22% on the first ballot. He was able to grow that ultimately to 51% on the 13th ballot when he narrowly defeated Maxime Bernier for the Conservative leadership. And um, it's interesting that the two also ran, in the in the current Conservative race are pretty right-of-center, one sort of libertarian, the other is just kook, verging um, on uh, bigotry. Oh,
1: you mean, and like Derek to Sloan. think that
4: they could actually shape the outcome of of the leadership race is of significant concern.
1: Okay, well, uh, okay, we know where you stand, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> I, no daylight. I, Maybe I couldn't. I, I, call, could. it like yeah, I, I go, call it like I Go ahead, I John.
2: I, I couldn't disagree with Charles more. Right, and in sir. fact, probably during the duration of this show, I, I can't I disagree with him more than I ever have before. Respectfully, of course. But no, look, uh, you know, and, and his, his language, I it. have
1: to say, Charles, that, you know, your language gets saltier with each passing <laughs> week in your basement.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, That's the Irish in me. Um, so I, I, I noticed that. Just, I think, just, I think we, should, we should be in person a bit more because he's a bit yeah, more calmer in that I, regard. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, I, I don't want to have to, uh, you know, version. Virtually slap you on the wrist with a ruler. But, uh, was it, was it the word
2: bigot? Noted. Problem?
4: Uh, <laughs> no, John, I'll, I'll defend know, that.
2: John, go look, ahead. At, at the end of the day, you know, and, and, and Charlie should be the last one to speak about his leadership race, which was a coronation and a complete yonder, uh provincially. But look, at the end of the day, um, what he said about Errol Tool is, this he can't be farther from the truth. Errol Tool has been an MP uh, and an, an absolute able backbencher. He was a minister... Uh, for a short period of time in the last Harper government, uh, and is a former uh, helicopter, uh, seeking pilot, uh, and has exemplary sort of, you know, credentials, not only to be, you know, of, of the party, but to be prime minister of this country. Uh, and Peter McKay is, you know, speaks for himself, the fact that he's been just an absolute, um, uh, you know, stellar, stellar performer with, with our caucus and government and all that kind of stuff. So we've got two really, really able leaders uh, running for this thing, and either one of them would be a phenomenal leader and prime minister. So... I, I got to disagree with with Charles on his assessment, and of course he's a liberal, and I understand that. But look, um, at the end of the day, you know, the fact that the, the, the leadership race was on pause, and now has been beginning. I think you're going to see Peter and Aaron, and quite frankly, the other two as well. But Peter and Aaron, uh, who are going to be a lot more proactive, are going to be a lot more. Um, you know, sort of open with respect to what, how they see things running and and how they think they would do, what what they would do with respect to to the policies that we're seeing out of the prime minister over the last little while, because it's their job now. And of course, they were on pause for a while, but now the, now the leadership is picked. The date's going to be August sometime. Um, you're going to see them be a lot more proactive on this. And, and quite frankly, Canadians will be surprised by what they what they see coming out of Aaron and Peter.
1: Okay, well, uh, let's hope so. I want to move to something that is frankly worrying me. Uh, so yesterday, the Prime Minister announced $850 million as part of a global commitment to research and development of COVID-19, and we keep hearing of these investments. So here's what I'm worried about. Uh, you know, there are a lot of groups around the world who are racing to get this vaccine and we hear a lot about cooperation but it's also competition but we have also heard from places including the biggest manufacturer of vaccines in the world in India and certainly in the United States and we know that if the vaccine is developed in those places they're saying our people come first so is the government doing enough to try to ensure that, you know, if there is a vaccine in a timely way, that, that we may actually get some of it?
4: Charles? Boy, that is the $64,000 question. I mean, there is a lot of very, very credible organizations that are currently working on a vaccine. We've heard Donald Trump come out earlier. Uh, just a few days ago, saying that his hope is that there's a vaccine in place by um, the end of the year. That the, the timing of that suggestion may be more geared to the presidential election than it is to reality, as most uh, most knowledgeable people tend to L-
1: Let me jump the in there. So we heard from Anthony Fauci, and what they're doing is throwing a lot of money at it. So what they're doing, they are... Going to manufacture some of the promising vaccines before they're approved, mm-hmm. and uh, if if they turn out to be approved, they'll be ready to go in the United States. And Libby, States. I like that approach. I mean, but, I think it's I think yeah. it's
4: aggressive, and I think that you know if if it's if it's done properly, then it is in some instances appropriate to do human trials before there is FDA approval or approval from whichever national body has oversight. Um, I should also add that. There's actually been a number of vaccines that have been in development years, not specific to COVID-19, because obviously this is uh, this is a new virus. But with regards to previous strains of COVID, so it's possible that um, scientists may be closer than we think to the development of a successful vaccine upon which, you know, any return to normalcy is really dependent. Right. So but it's, Of course, but it, once you have the vaccine in place, and even if it works 100% perfectly and gets all necessary approvals, producing hundreds of millions, if not billions of doses, and distributing them adequately in a fair way where they're needed most is probably the ultimate challenge.
1: Well, exactly. So that's what I'm asking. Karen, do you have confidence? And and again, in the States, what they're doing is they are prepared to be dumping a lot of this stuff down the drain if it doesn't pan out. Just to make sure that if they if, if it is approved, they've they've got it. And then I don't know where we are on the pep- pecking order. I mean, I'm assuming, given that the rest of the world is bigger than Canada, it's all in likelihood that the winning vaccine will not come from here.
3: Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say that the, the winning vaccine won't come from Canada. Uh, you know, up until today, I I was reading that the the fastest that a vaccine has gone from. Um, it, into the making to approval to distribution is five years, yeah, and so and now we're looking at you know less than twelve months, so you know I think that the um, you know it's, there's a race there's a number of potential trials out there, there's a number of vaccine vaccines that are being tested and worked on, and there's going to be probably be a number that will be available, but in between now and then you know I, I think that, you know, the one thing that we still also need to be working on is, is what is a treatment? Yeah. And, and I think that's where Canada actually, I think, has the advantage. That we, we may not develop the vaccine, but we'll develop a way to more effectively treat patients earlier mm-hmm. so that the outcomes are better than what we're seeing right now. And taking the steps to prevent this disease, this uh, virus, rather, from getting into places that affect the most vulnerable so badly, so poorly, is another strategy that I think that we are winning at, to be candid. I mean, the, the nursing homes and the long-term care facilities are an issue that we do need to grapple with and continue to grapple with, but the general rate of infection in the population is very, 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 very low. Very low. And so I, I think that Canada is well-placed to uh, come out of this um, you know, While waiting for the vaccine, and I, and, I, and I know the vaccine will be the thing that people are looking to to say that that's when life returns to normal, there's no normal. Life won't return to normal for some time to come, and a vaccine is not going to make that happen. So I, I actually think that um, while it is going to happen, while we can look forward to that happening, what we are doing as a country is are, are taking the right steps to helping protect our population and rebuild our economy.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, when you talk to researchers, they point out that there are really only a, a couple of diseases that have actually been eradicated with a vaccine. Yeah. So yeah. There's, there's no guarantee. There's no it, guarantee. When it comes to this, and, and yes, there are some people who are looking into treatments treatments, and most of it is repurposing. Drugs. I mean, we had we had that big Fauci uh, endorsement of Remdesivir last week, uh, but again, uh, there's also with any of those things they have to be approved, and there there's also an issue of of supply.
2: John, well, this is an issue where I think calmer heads uh, will need to prevail, and and calmer heads being sort of the FDA in the U.S. and Health Canada here. And, in our um, in our country because you know the the rush uh to get a to get a vaccine is just it's palpable, it's 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 global. Uh, everybody's racing for it. I think it's good that we've got some amazingly smart scientists uh from a number of companies, including Johnson and Johnson, who are who are on the cusp of of, uh, of of coming up with a vaccine. They're testing it. Some of some have gone through the the animal tests are now doing some human tests and obviously all to try to get to get a vaccine uh, that's going to work and, and I agree with with both Karen and, and Charles with this and I think you know caution and uh, and and some just some some patience I think with respect to this because you know everybody wants the vaccine and everybody's been told that the, the only way we're going to get back to normal is if we have a vaccine uh, and you know and, and and that's raising a lot of hopes and, and it and I think it should and, and it's good to be able to focus on that quite frankly uh, given the Doom and gloom that we've been sort of seeing up until the last little while, but look, I, I think uh, a vaccine will be will be will come. It always does, uh, and when that comes, you know, net, be it next year, I think you know the, the Health Canada's and, and the scientists that, that look at that will make make darn sure that. It is something that is usable and workable, uh, and I do listen. I do believe that we can get back to normal. I think that you know there's going to be a lot of a lot of uh, trepid times when when people will be social, social distancing even when things are not sort of back to normal. Um, but a vaccine will go a long way to making sure that we we co- go back to the days pre-COVID.
1: And uh, just before we move on on and this topic, will that 850 million dollars buy us a place in line? No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, listen, it's, it's a it's a it's a start, uh, but but I think I think it's going to be a lot more than money. It's going to be diplomacy. It's going to be leadership. Uh, it's going to be you know get just just being able to to work the global network. Quite frankly.
1: Okay. Uh Now, one of the things uh, I'm going to be picking up with this in the second half of the show, but yesterday, I uh, heard a very shocking statistic from one of our leading geriatricians, Dr. Samir Sinha. Canada now has the largest percentage of nursing home deaths among 14 countries, basically in the in the world in in the Western world, let's say, which is a very Grim milestone, and there's opening up a, a discussion about for-profit versus not-for-profit nursing homes. Karen, do you have a view?
3: Yeah, the re- I do. Uh, the regulation that governs both the for-profit and not-for-profit nursing homes is the same. So it, the, the, the the provider of the care is still governed by the same regulation, and so the issue is not whether it's for-profit or not-for-profit. The issue is the regulation and the subsidies that providers received to provide the care. And uh, there is uh, ample evidence that we've seen that uh, we, don't get, we don't provide enough funding for personal support workers who do the work in long-term care, that they're shuffling between long-term care facilities to make ends meet, and they're not making a living wage. And so it. From my perspective, it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether it's private or not-for-profit. The issue is, do we have the right regulations, and do we have the right support for the people that are providing the level of care that we need in these facilities? And, and that's where the focus needs to be. And if it, if it starts to become private versus public, then it distracts us from the real issues that we need to tackle with.
1: Well, uh, if you talk to advocates, and we do all the time, the vast number of complaints are uh, about for-profit. And uh, they're they keener, I guess, to to cut corners, to turn a profit, because they have shareholders.
3: Uh, but, but again, you know, sorry, not to jump in, and I won't mm-hmm. take more time than my allocation, mm-hmm. but, you know, the Salvation Army had an outbreak, the City of Toronto had an outbreak, and those are not-for-profit organizations. So it's yeah, not... No,
1: I'm not, I'm not just yeah. talking about an outbreak. I'm talking about... Other concerns in terms of the staffing, as you said, and 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 other things, because these are, of course, very long-standing problems. John, do you agree that profit or not-for-profit is not an issue?
2: I, I personally don't think it's an issue. I, I, you know, I think that we just don't have the capability to have to have as many. Um, for public uh, or public long term care facilities anyways, because there 's just so much so much the governments can do, so I think private sector needs to jump in as uh, as I firmly believe in, on, on a lot of occasions, but certainly in this in this case, but I think Karen is right with respect to the regulations I think that it's it 's health care' it 's dealing with uh, life and death of of, uh, of seniors. Uh, and as a result, government has to have a regulation, um, you know, uh, there that that matches. It's like it's like schools, right? In, in, you know, private schools versus public schools. There's there's a general, governments have to have a regulation that sort of can can just transcend the, both of them because they're both equally important to to the well being of, of of Canadians, be it be it education or be it healthcare. So I think that 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 would be the key here. But I do think that private sector has a role to play and, and have been. Uh, I do hear you, though, Libby, with respect to some of the complaints you're hearing are coming from more of the pro- for-profit ones because you feel that as as a business, uh, cutting costs and stuff. But I think that in most cases, a lot of the private uh, long-term care facilities are are in better, better shape, better equipped, um, have better facilities in some cases.
4: Uh, Charles? Boy, I, Libby, that's be one of the most important questions um, I've heard in a long time. And I think it comes, I agree with John. I mean, private partnership is important in terms of building capacity and ensuring that there's enough spaces. But, you know, when it comes to regulation, regulation is wholly dependent on enforcement.
1: Exactly. And you've got a
4: situation where, um, uh, you know, a, a nursing home that's privately run is not getting inspectors going through on a regular basis, or if the nursing home is getting um, a heads up as to when inspectors are coming by, if you've got that kind of situation, then you've got the temptation to cut corners and to reduce costs at the expense of the people living in long-term care facilities, and and that is the issue. The the other thing I would say is, you know, the, the people who clean our workspaces and who clean our living spaces, and who are responsible for the care of our seniors. I really hope at the end of this awful, awful experience that we see these folks in a whole different light that we treat them differently, that we pay them much more than they're getting now, because Karen's right, they're getting subsistence wages in a lot of cases. And what we've seen over and over again, and perhaps understandably, is staff who are getting sick or staff who are desperately worried about getting sick, who who simply say, I can't do this to my family. I cannot continue to do what I'm doing in this long-term care facility. Um, and, and that's a problem we just have to solve. And, I, I mean, that's the kind of thing that's costing lives and causing misery.
1: And some of it, some of it is uh, unconscionable that until this regulation was put in by the government and, and it's supported with money from Ottawa, the reason that they had to work in multiple places was so not, not that there wasn't enough work, there's a shortage of personal support workers, but because their employers didn't want to pay them benefits.
4: That's right. And, and <laughs> clearly in British Columbia, if you work in a long-term care, care facility, it's stipulated that that is the one long-term care facility that you will work in for just this reason. Because the, the, the degree to which workers can transmit this virus from care, care facility to care facility is, is a really major problem.
1: Okay, um, we are, uh, starting to get to the end of our time. And, uh, I, I, started, uh, the intro with, you know, every day we hear from another group falling through the cracks. Uh, the prime minister seems to love handing out money and, and however you design one thing, there's, there's some leak in another thing. And, and, you know, one of the things that he just said a few minutes ago really struck me because he's he's talking about dealing with surplus food that's being dumped, and he said the government will help distribute it where it needs to go. Uh, Right at the beginning of this, with great fanfare, the federal government announced $9 million to help service organizations distribute food or whatever to seniors who couldn't get out. And, you know, as a matter of days ago, people are still saying they do not know how to access that service. So, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Anybody have thoughts on all of that?
3: Well, well yeah, I think what go we're ahead. dealing with is it's easy. You know, you, you, we, they took the step to shut down a number of things. And so shutting down was the public health recommendation. And so um, that happened. But with now we're realizing all of the implications for when you shut things down. And, and the, the implications are broader than anybody could have imagined. And we don't have enough Band-Aids. And, and all the money that we're spending, again, it does rely on an economy being able to come back to life and, re- and repay that debt through economic growth. And so that's, that's the challenge ahead for the government is that there's a, it's a dual role of making sure that there isn't c- complete economic collapse um, as well as positioning us for a, 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 you know, a, a return to growth. And that's not going to be a short journey.
1: Uh, yeah, and what about, I mean, is this still the right thing, Charles, to be, you know, um, handing out millions and millions of dollars every day?
4: Oh, absolutely. And and I'll risk getting slapped on the wrist, Libby, by, by saying, you know, I was really disappointed in Andrew Shear and his suggestion recently that we should be, like, reducing emergency relief for Canadians who suddenly find themselves out of work and, and without a paycheck for fear that they're sort of the, 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 we're running the risk of them becoming lazy and never wanting to go back to work again. I mean, it's just—it's just nuts, right? It, it goes to the old scapegoating of so-called welfare cheats and how this problem is rampant and how Canadians would much rather sit at home and not work and, and collect pogey than than anything else. And, and I just don't—I just don't get it. I mean, I could understand it coming from conservative leadership candidates because clearly they've got to play to a particular base you know, whether it's social conservatives or the far right, but I just don't understand the attitude. Right now, I mean, there are a lot of people outside of those who are suffering through COVID itself or family members who were witnessing the deaths of thousands of Canadians. Um, You know, there's a lot of Canadians who've been hugely disadvantaged and the government is doing, and, and both the federal government and provincial governments, including Premier Ford, are doing absolutely the right thing by urging caution and saying, Um, you know, let's stay home, let's let this thing pass, let's get past this. Because this this whole Trumpian notion that, oh, we have to turn back on the spigots. I mean, if we see another outbreak of, of COVID... It's not a question of turning off the spigots again. It's a question of, like, taking a sledgehammer to the spigots. The spigots Uh, will be gone.
1: Okay, but I I bet on that note, uh, I'm saying I I bet that uh, everything comes back on stream. It's starting to happen, and I think it's going to happen pretty quickly now. And even yesterday, there was a hint here in Ontario, maybe by Victoria Day. Uh, And before we wrap up, I'm going to try to take two quick calls. Darko in Etobicoke. Hi, Darko. Yeah, like Karen
2: Stint's idea of like uh, getting treatment for people who get it because of the the numbers involved. And for Charles, I know he was saying that we would have to start using this before it was approved and we'll have human test subjects. I'm not sure if that was the right wording, but are you going to be first in line when that comes up? You know, because I don't want to be the first one without it being. Uh, thoroughly tested to take it.
1: Oh, there are already people who uh, have lined up to be the first in line. Um, most of them, I think, younger people, not here in the in the UK and the US. But, uh, Darko, I hear you. Thanks for your call. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, and quickly, Mary in Burlington. Hello, Mary. Hi, how are you
0: today, Libby? Fine, how are you? Oh, I'm not too bad, thank you. Yes. Libby, I would just like to say briefly... I am terribly, terribly disappointed at the way this pandemic has become a political football. Shame on the Conservative Party and its leadership contenders to be leading them. It's not only the people who are ill and dying. What about the grieving relatives I I could go on. Okay. I'm a retired healthcare worker and I would like to say a, bo- a bit more, but however, I would just like to say shame on the leadership contenders for the Conservative of the Conservative Party. Okay,
1: Mary. Thanks for that. Mary's
4: obviously an intelligent and discerning (laughs) Okay,
1: Okay,
2: everybody. And related
4: related to Charles.
1: Okay, I'm going to give everybody 20 seconds each. uh, We can start with Charles.
4: Well, I I don't know what else to say, um, apart from the fact that we have to be so careful going forward, because this virus is unlike anything we've seen before in terms of just how incredibly transmissible it is. I get that people are hurting. I get that people are desperate to get outside. But listen to Premier Ford. Listen to the Prime Minister. Um, like we have to work together to get past this. And we're 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 really into a, 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 such a such an important phase where the temptation to sort of leave behind. How well behaved we've been, and, and to, to start adopting some of our former habits—that'll be the death of us, figuratively and literally.
2: Okay, John. Uh, there's no playbook to this to this crisis. We've never seen one like this, and I think leaders, certainly at the beginning, were sort of playing um, uh, by no rule book and doing the best they can with respect to what they had. And I was quite proud of the fact that, you know, from a political perspective, uh, notwithstanding your famous caller, but I, I think that there was no ideological um, partisanship. Uh, I think that as time has gone on and as we started talking about recovery, uh, there has been some level of opposition, you know, attacks and critics and, and whatnot. I think that we need to be patient with respect to uh, what has to happen as, as far as recovery. I think opposition leaders need to be ensure that they're not tone deaf or not coming across as they're tone deaf, which is to say that they can challenge the leadership, but challenge it in a way that is for the people, which means you know, making sure the programs are, are the right programs and that they're getting, they're getting received by, by the Canadians as much as they can. I think that's the key thing over the next little while, especially as we start talking about recovery.
3: Karen? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, the government needs to, you know, uh, trust the public to um, manage uh, with, you know, within the new restrictions that we are going to adopt, but that we, we can leave our homes. We, we need to leave our homes. We, we can't live in our homes until there's a vaccine. So we need to figure out ways to safely return to living. And living is going to look different. We all understand that. But uh, it, is, it is time to have a, an adult conversation about how that process begins.
1: Okay. Uh, that is all the time we have. Thank you so much to our strategy panel, Charles Bird, John Capobianco, and Karen and We will talk again next week. Thank you. Thanks, Libby. Thanks,
0: Libby. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one.